Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to Now Where Were We? I'm Bob Cryer. And today, Dad and I are meeting up for a well-deserved pint with the actor, writer and presenter, Sanjeev Bhaskar. Dad's a huge fan of Sanjeev's work in Goodness Gracious Me and The Kumars at number 42. Although for my kids, and indeed myself, it's his appearance in Paddington 2 and the way he says the word bottoms that seals his place in the comedy pantheon. The first thing we wanted to know was how Sanjeev felt when the word chuddies, which he popularised in one of his catchphrases, made its way into the Oxford English Dictionary. How did that come about? Well, um... Did you actually lobby? No. I mean, No, it was... It was. uh, (laughs) be great if you could actually find a pressure group to get a word into the dictionary. It was... uh, Goodness gracious me, there were a couple of characters that I wrote and and uh, one of which I performed on that. And I wanted, and they were kind of um, uh, Asian kids who were kind of street kids um, uh, that I saw a lot of around that time. You know, like the type that they just put the in it at the end of the sentence, in it uh, For no real reason, but it's emphasis. <laughs> That's why. And, uh, and I was looking for a phrase that meant or that could mean oh, my goodness, or go away, or, you know, up yours, or, you know, one of those things, an, an, an emphatic uh, phrase of some kind that was new and to them. And at the time, The Simpsons was was kind of uh, recently started, I suppose. And Bart Simpson had a phrase uh, which was kiss my shorts. Yeah. And I thought, you know what, rhythmically, that's really good. There's a good rhythm to that, that those three beats are quite good. So Kiss My Chuddies uh, <laughs> became, and Chuddies are, are underpants. And um, and it, through repetition then, and it being used in, you know, other references, it went it's, into it's the dictionary. It's the playground zeitgeist, isn't it? It's when the young ones came out and everyone was, yeah. you know, doing Rickisms. Yeah, right. Have you had that uh, experience of becoming part of the zeitgeist, Father? Uh, not to my knowledge, no. <laughs> Well, that, was the, that was the thing about the Far Show. I said, well, let's just do all catchphrases, you know, to, yes. to a greater or lesser extent. They did that as a, a joke item for an award or something, and somebody said, you could do this. They hadn't thought of doing it as a, an actual series, you know, and I, they did it as a joke bit for an award or something. And, uh, oh, that was great. But fun. with Kenny Everett, the, with, uh, it's all done with the best possible taste. Yeah. It became something close to a... yes to a repeated thing in the playground. And his instinct, crossing his legs violently when he said that, he remembered a a drag act from years ago, old mother Riley, who used to cross her legs forcefully when she was speaking. It's weird looking back, Everett remembering a drag act you knew when he was a kid. Oh, she used to instinctively, oh, I'll cross my legs when I say it, best possible taste, you know. But the whole thing, it, it's interesting, that whole thing with, with catchphrases, because they go back to the beginning of, certainly of sound, don't they? I mean, you know, another here's another fine mess you got me into. Yes. Um, uh, became a catchphrase. That was something that was repeated. That, yeah became the title of one of their films as well, you know. So that um, familiarity is something that... I another guess makes... nice mess, incidentally. Another nice mess. Not fine. How did, it, being... become, how did it become fine? fine? Yeah, It, it was mis- misquoted. I, I've often said fine, and it's been checked out. The, or- the original is nice mess. Oh, well, there you go. Isn't that fascinating and <laughs> deadly dull? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's brilliant. That's, I've got uh, a friend who loves mis- misquote, misquoting famous lines. Oh, right. Rufus, if you're listening. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's all things like, uh, um, this is the start of a beautiful partnership, you know. <laughs> yeah. <like that>. oh. <laughs> Where we're going, we don't need to ride in a car. Yeah. <laughs> Just to really annoy the pedants. I was watching uh, 12 Angry Men about the jury. 
mm. uh, you know, and they're arguing. And one of the characters is very forcefully, he don't even speak proper English. And the guy next to him said, he doesn't even speak proper English. <laughs> I thought, a lovely little moment in, in the film. Um, in the film? Yes, I'd never spotted that moment. Oh, it, was, uh, it was great. Oh, and David Renwick, a friend, uh, rebuked a man uh, once and said, you and your pedanticism. And the man said, pedantry. And David said, oh, yes. <laughs> but just talking about these kind of early films, so Laurel and Hardy remain one of my favourites, actually, I have to say. And it's something about that combination of the, the relationship and pricking pomposity and, and breaking the fourth wall as well. Uh, really That's right. Um, but what were yours? Uh, Barry, when you, you, you did you go back to them? How did you discover that era, era of comedy? Uh, a lot of people said Marx Brothers. Or uh, Marx Hardy Brothers or... for me because, uh, I mean, I, I can't be objective about it, but the Marx Brothers don't seem to date to this day if you see them. I mean, that early film, Duck Soup, which is about a war, is super phenomenal, isn't yeah. it? And they were visual as well as verbal. They had the clearly defined characters. Were you always Groucho first, or did you sort of warm to them all in in? I warmed to them measure? all, and yes, and they had their well-defined rules. I mean, Harpo was verbal in their early days on the stage, mm. but then they decided that the, with his face, it'd be funny if he was the one who didn't speak. It yeah. sort of evolved through time, you know. What I love about Zeppo is that he did a very good Groucho. And right. that he would often deputize. And so, again, he was someone, for the sake of the team, he took a bullet because he would, you know, he was the sort of matinee idol-looking one who did he the song. He was a straight and man the in there. And all yeah. of that. But he could do, he had the chops to do a groucher. Yeah, if he wanted. There's those great stories as well where uh, Chico would go and shag some girl after a, a show or something wearing Harpo's wig. <laughs> they looked alike enough. And, of course, he didn't have to say anything. No. <laughs> That's wonderful. What was he? He was, um, he was kissing a chorus girl, wasn't it? And his wife showed up. Yeah. And he said, I was, I was whispering in her mouth. <laughs> oh, God. Jack Benny, an idol who I did meet and write for, he was a young comedian and he was on the bill. He told me this. He was on the bill with the great Marx Brothers. He was, you know. And, of course, they were physical, verbal, capering about the stage, doing those sketches. And he thought, I'm a young comic here. And he said, I can't believe it looking back. I'll be different. I'll be slow and quiet. <laughs> and he said, it was really tough when I was starting as a young comic, being slow and quiet. But he held on to it. And that man's pauses were wonderful. He could get a laugh at a pause and just his... His reaction. He's done that fantastic thing once, didn't he, when he said, you know, people say that uh, uh, I could be funny reading out the phone book. Well, let's find out. Yeah. <laughs> and he did. And, and, and everyone, <laughs> because it was, it was the pauses and the waiting of the thing. It was brilliant. Yeah. Well, they said about the speed, and you say that gives you longevity. And that was always the thing with Phil Silvers, who was, you know, as he got older, he became a very different kind of performer yeah. because he couldn't handle the pace mm. anymore. Yeah. Whereas Jack Benny just got slower, if anything. They were doing... Uh, he sped we were, up. He sped, <laughs> yeah. We were working on, uh, working on the Des O'Connor show. Benny Hill had been a big hit in America and they're trying to, you know, launch Des as a, in America. And the people I met, the, the performers who came over to do it, including Jack Benny, I thought, I'm meeting Jack Benny. And he was so polite and quiet and we all liked the guy, remembered everybody's name. And... Uh, one day he said, Ronnie Kaus I was working with, I remember, who was a musician as well, obviously. And uh, one day Jack Benny said very politely, I've had an idea. Uh, you've got a, a set of a shop, a clothing shop, and uh, I pick up this tie and look at it. And then the, the guy behind the counter tells me how much it costs. What do you think? And we said, <laughs> Oh, boy, this is embarrassing. What do we say? Oh, and the director gave us a wink as if, well, we can shoot it anyway, you know, indulge the man. And uh, I forgot the name of the actor behind, uh, Jimmy Villiers. He was in the show anyway, but he played the man behind the counter. 
And uh, Jack Benny came in, and, good morning, morning, and went to a tie rack and picked up a tie and looked at another tie. And then he took one tie to Jimmy Villiers and said, how much is this? And Jimmy Villiers told him. And Jack Benny was stunned and just turned and looked at the camera and the audience laughed. Mm. And we thought, masterclass. Yeah. He knew. Des O'Connor said, nobody's watching me. He said, if you're in a sketch with Jack Benny, he said, you look at his reaction to every... He's getting the laughs. He said, I'm delighted to be working with him. Was it the same show that you said you got to stand with him in the in the edit suite? That's right. We'd done a bit where he was just fourth wall talking to the camera, to, and we never got it done. John Scofield, the producer, said, oh, God, we never got that done. <clears throat> so he said to Jack, you're flying home tomorrow. And Jack Bunny said, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm flying in the morning. And John Scofield said, we never got that bit done, Jack, did we? I could fly in the afternoon. Never forgot that. Mm. So I'm with him in a deserted studio. <laughs> There's a man going to put canned laughter on it. And Jack Benny, there's just him and me and the cameraman, he does this three-minute bit with very strange pauses. We then go into the booth or whatever to talk to the man who's putting the laughs on. And this guy said to me later, that was a masterclass. He said, most comics would say, laugh there, laugh there after the joke. He'd say, you stopped in the middle of that line, Jack. Yes, they've just... <laughs> realised what I said before. <laughs> and uh, with respect, he said, that's not a great joke, so don't put a big laugh on it. And the man who was doing it he, afterwards, he said, that was just amazing. He said, you put it together, and it was edited into the show, and you couldn't tell the difference of him with the audience on the night and the bit we'd shot the next morning. He was in awe of him, this yeah. sound man. He said, nobody I've done it for us was brilliant as that, he said. Stopping in the middle of a line because they've just realised what I said before. That's supremely confident, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's really knowing But also crime. so well honed on the circuit. Yeah. Yes. You, um, you're talking about the silent movie heroes of yours. You both have the Bristol Slapstick Festival mm. in common. Um, and that was something that we, I seem to remember um, growing up with. Harold Lloyd was on a Tuesday night, a sort of at six o'clock, that we played. It seems weird to think during the 70s. The yeah. early 80s, that that was something that was regularly coming into British homes. Whereas I would say Jack Benny was largely, not unknown, but to our generation, perhaps, was someone you discovered a bit later on. Yeah. I yeah. Well, I don't, I mean, Jack Benny was never kind of a TV star in, in Britain. No. You know, he, he obviously had his radio career and his TV career in America. So I think unless you were interested in comedy, then you found out about these guys. But, but oh, to be growing up now where everything is available. And so people's tastes in comedy are transatlantic, they're global, they're... They can, you, I you mean, hope, it, it can yeah. all be found. But the, but the difference is, I think, that, you know, TV is still, you know, people still will for certain programmes, you know, gather together to watch it. With, they won't gather around a laptop or a no. phone or something. And, you know, I remember as a kid, uh, the best thing about the school holidays was that uh, starting at sort of nine o'clock on, on BBC Two in the morning, you'd have kind of three or four hours of, you know, Chaplin and Keaton and Harold Lloyd and uh, Laurel and Hardy. And then you'd have, you know, it happened one night or something like you'd have all these. Yeah. And as a kind of uh, education in terms of, purely in terms of comedy, what you get is the kind of genealogy of comedy. You don't get the end result. You get that stuff, and then, you know, in the afternoon, in the evening, there'd be kind of the two Ronnies or, you know, you know Kenny Everett in the evening or Python or whatever. And across that, you know, those summer holidays or even across that day, you'd sort of get the full kind of cycle. Whereas now, if you're interested, of course you can go and find it, but you have to go on YouTube. And yeah. It's there. But um, Or Bilko, which I think is still, I think, is genius yeah. and ahead of its time. Just in terms of the pace of it, yeah. it's extraordinary. And that was, you know, that was on the telly. And so it was there and you could watch it on your own, but chances were that other members of your family would be there or someone who dropped in was there. And so it became a part of your life in a way that is yes. 
in a way that you know watching things on YouTube isn't because it's, it's yeah. you and a, a small which screen. has that element of discovery that I think I remember um, Conan O'Brien talking about uh, SCTV, you know, the Martin Short, yeah. Eugene Levy, yeah. uh, uh, Catherine O'Hara show that was sort of a, a cousin, Canadian cousin of, um, of SNL, mm. Saturday Night Live. And he said where he lived in, in sort of upstate, um, I think he, was, uh, he grew up near Boston, but just north of there. And he said it was the way he, he had to put his aerial on top of a, cupboard in order to get a Canadian <laughs> TV station that was playing it. So that was the element of discovery. Yeah. Whereas, you know, what you're saying is sort of that happens to people on laptops, but the shared experience of the family show uh, where, you know, comedy is obviously to, something to be shared, that was something that, that radio, where you gather around the radio and listen to. Yeah, well, can you ever refer to this as well? When the uh, recorders came in, you know, and you could record a programme, and uh, Everett said, you know somebody's got one of these because you say to them, uh, did you see that programme last night? And they say, not yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it was communal in those days. You couldn't record a programme. So the family would gather round to watch a programme or listen to a radio show. And I think it's sad that went really the communal viewing and listening was, uh, you know... Just... I think particularly with comedy, because it's, yes. I mean, whether it's, you know, films, whether it's theatre, whether it's, you know, live, it's that shared experience. Yeah, you shared and you're laughing together. You're the little audience there, yeah. And there's something about also an audience discovering that moment together that connects yes. all of you, Yeah, you know, which is quite unique in that, I suppose, you know, I'm trying to think of equivalents, but I guess in... In horror films, it's it's the group scare. Mm. You know, the, there's suddenly you're all connected because you all went ah! at the same yes, time. Yes, that's right. Um, and that can only be. I mean, you know, you, you feel like a twit on your own if you're going ah! <laughs> at a horror film. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> no, that communal audience thing. Yes, that's what it's about. I, I was curious, actually. With actually, there were two questions that came into my head at the same time. So this will be the first one, which was. Uh, for you guys, what was the what was the communal TV shows for your for the family? What were the programs that you all kind of went? Okay, let's all gather around to watch this. There was only me and my mum. My dad had died, and my brother was away. I'm trying to remember what my mother and I used to watch. Oh, that good gracious! We didn't have a television set for a long time. She got. She got rid of it for some reason, and I can't remember. Oh, you why. had it, and it went. It, yes, stealing it's all the stealing all the laughs. That's why. <laughs> yes, we were listening to the wireless, as it was known. <laughs> yes, listening to uh, Tommy Handley, who was a big star in those days. Itmar, it's that man again. Itmar. Oh boy, that was. But a- when when you um, when you had your own family, and and I came along, and I was. Always grateful in the fact that you quite you quite a Catholic viewer. You would watch all different kinds of comedy. I remember Kelly Monteith. Yeah, I remember Kelly. Monteith. Oh yeah, and, and uh, I was a great thrill of mine. I'm the youngest of four. The great thrill of mine is obviously I've got um, three children myself, and I know that by the third one, by the youngest, you've given up trying to <laughs> enforce any rules. So that by the time I was you know old enough to get the jokes that were on, I was able to sneak into your bedroom, and you would be watching. I guess in the way a lot of people in America watch late night mm. TV and the talk shows, and this is in a way connected to, God forbid, this should actually be connected to the conceit of this podcast, but, and watch <laughs> the, uh, uh, um, again, late at night, there would very often be, there'd be a Mel Brooks movie on, there'd be stuff that was perhaps a little bit edgier than I'd be allowed to watch normally, but the great thrill was Parky. Mm. So that was Saturday night's, I think, mm. and so just before match of the day or just after, I forget. Um, and the thing that we were talking about when we when we started coming up with the idea for the podcast is that that was the time when you get to look into a celebrity's life off mm-hmm. screen. Mm-hmm. So Betty Davis would be on, mm-hmm. David yes. Niven would be on, mm-hmm. and that would be the only chance you get. Yeah, no, you're right. That was the thrill. And it was, I mean, I've kind of gone back and found... Uh, not just on YouTube, actually, when I was in New York, there was the, the the Museum of Film and Television where they had the archives of all the shows there. And going back to some of those 
early Tonight shows with Jack Parr and, and people like that. Yeah. It's fascinating because it's it because also I think that you know people who do the the you know contractual ob- obligation PR rounds now to go on those shows are much much well versed at because they're on for maybe ten minutes yeah and you've got to sell the thing that you're doing because that's why you're there and that's a- why it's so great and just in the recent past we've uh, lost Charles Grodin yeah and Norm Macdonald. And they were two great examples of people who went on and gave the anti-interview, didn't yeah, they? Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> They uh, withdraw the, the the kind of carrot from the the host to have the banter. Yeah, and just say I've got my lawyer on the phone you know, right. just this afternoon. Or... <laughs> but that's the thing with all those early shows; there were conversations. There wasn't. They didn't feel like there was a contractual obligation to the conversation, and so they were allowed to flow and. You had the time, and so you felt that you got to know a bit about the person. Yeah, yes. and that yeah. was the thing that's different. I think now you get it's a bit like I've always felt this. Actually, you know, the internet's an amazing thing, obviously. Um, but certainly, when I was a kid, if you wanted to know something, if you're curious about something, you had to ask someone. And if they didn't know, you had to get the bus or whatever and go to the library and maybe get a book on it. And if the book wasn't in, you had to ask the librarian either when it would be back or ask for another book. You'd say, look, this is what I want to find out. Is there another book? And so there was a physical journey to you finding out, for instance, that you know the blue whale is the, the largest kind of mammal in the world. And so there was a physical journey to that. Yeah. And along the way, chances are you learned 10 other things. Right. Yes. Whereas now you can just look it up and you go, what's the biggest app? And you go, blue whale. And you're completely in the hands of the person telling you whether <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, an uncle or a cousin or a friend in the, in the playground. Yeah. Um, whereas we now just call that Wikipedia. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I never you thought s- of that, Sanjeev. That, that journey, going to the library, opening a book, searching around, that is much more satisfying than going, oh, I must look that up, click, oh, got it. Well, this is something, so, you know, one of my kind of uh, um, various hats is uh, is being the Chancellor of the University of Sussex. And there's a story that I, I tell the graduates at, at uh, the graduation ceremonies occasionally. And it's it's some ancient story about some old king, let's say Greece, ancient Greece. And the king decides that the next day they're going to move the capital. Right, and he says, right, we're moving tomorrow. So everyone's got to get out of here. Here's the other place. Off you go. And all these people kind of packed up their kind of carts and they got their horses and all the rest of it. And there were those that kind of raced off just to get the best real estate. They said, well, let's get there. We'll get the best bit and it'll be fantastic. And there were the others who plodded along and they stopped at villages and stopped at a waterfall and, you know, took in the sights. And when they all arrived at this new place, there was nothing there. It was barren. And so the only people who'd gained anything were the people who'd stopped along the way. And so that whole thing about the journey is everything. You know, it's kind of, um, because I said, you know, even going to the library to find out, you know, which king did what, is that you you inevitably look at three other books and there's other bits of information that go in. And I think it stays with you in a slightly different way. It's less disposable. Yeah, it's like opening a reference book, which I do quite a lot, looking up a name, but you see another name on the same page and you think, oh, yes, and then you turn to that. And I finished up checking out seven or eight names because I only looked up one to start with. <laughs> I love the chain of connection. Well, I know I mean, that reminds you of him, her, well, you used it. To, you used to write sketches for Les Dawson with... Um, David Nobbs and David I Nobbs. And Les, yeah. And, uh, yeah, make connections, you know. But, all, but although, I have to say, I mean, for that, the internet, I mean, there's almost too much information because the number of times I've disappeared down a rabbit hole yeah. where I've been looking up one thing and then it's led me to something else. It's great, fun, but actually it's still disposable. It's the and, virtual equivalent of walking into a room and going, I forgot why I came in here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just getting interested in something else, you know. <laughs> something else that I wanted to ask both of you, actually, which I was just curious about. Who was the first famous person you met and and it may or may not be the same as who was the first hero you met when i was at university briefly i'm ba english failed that's another story um i was working for the writing for the university magazine and frankie howard 
was a bit of an idol of mine. In those days, a radio star. But there was the Empire Theatre in Leeds, and uh, Frankie Howard was topping the bill, so I thought, oh, boy. So I went and left a note at the stage door, got a very quick reply. It was twice nightly, two shows a night, and he invited me along on a Friday between the two shows. And uh, I turned up, and he met me personally at the stage door with a dog, which is neither here nor there. Then we, we went to his dressing room, and I thought, I can't believe it. He was the first big name I'd actually met, and uh, I was trying to concentrate and uh, make some notes, and we chatted away. Then he produced some embrocation and uh, indicated his groin and said, I get these terrible pains here, but it's not the same when I rub it in. And I thought, oh, boy. And I managed to evade the issue and change the subject, and he took the rejection. And I found out he... Bless it, he tried it on with everybody and got rejected all yes, over the place. Yes, I have to place. say at this point, this is well documented <laughs> by, by quite a few people. But yeah. I'd never, it's the first time I've ever heard uh, that Frankie Howard had effectively Schrodinger's dog. It was neither here nor there. <laughs> That's extraordinary. I, mean, I don't know why I mentioned the dog, Well, because it's a kind it's of It's got like... nothing to do with the story at all. <laughs> but but it's, it, that's the most incredible part of this story, because yes. the other bit we know about when that. When he arrived yeah. at the stage door with a dog, what was that about? Yeah, which was neither here nor there. It was extraordinary. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And what about you? What, what was the first famous person and or hero that you Well, met? obviously, when I was three days old, I met the uh, host of <laughs> uh, Hello Cheeky, Barry Cryer, <laughs> and uh, whatever happened to him. Um, I remember you didn't often bring uh, people you were working with home. That sounds quite tawdry, doesn't it? So, so no, no. <laughs> uh, but you, uh, you had a 40... Now, I think this is right. You had a 40-second birthday party. And I remember that because I think it was the age at which your father died, I think. Yes. And you threw a big party as if to say, well, I made it this far. Mm. And it was full of everyone you'd worked with, like, in the last five years. So my job was on car park duty. So I would sit in the window by the front door. Oh, I remember this, yeah. The guests would come in and I would see if they had a car and then I'd rush to the front door and I'd get the keys and sort of hang them on the hook. And I swear on my life that I was looking and no one no one had been for a while. And then behind me, the curtain started moving uh, and it was Eric Morecambe. <laughs> Poked his head through the curtain, as I was used to seeing him on television do. Yeah. And there was there's no line attached to this and not much of a story, which is a, a shame, but he, was, he said, uh, uh, he just went, is he here yet? <laughs> <laughs> and I was—I I remember I was—I uh, uh, was dressed as a goalkeeper, so I had, the, I had the gloves on as well at the time. He didn't do a line about that either. But you said that party—he went round resolutely talking to everybody who wasn't in quotes a star. Yeah, he was mm-hmm. always more interested in the friends of mum from the local church, or yes. friends of yours from the pub, or whatever, because he and was, the guy in the wheelchair. Yeah, yeah. Is that the only time he came? Came around, Eric? I or? think the only time Eric came to the house, yes. Ernie, who lived uh, for a while in Harrow, very close by, we saw more of yeah. in those days, yeah. But uh, um, after that, there was uh, Vincent Price. Oh, wow. Came around. I know, I couldn't believe wow. that. Wow, yeah. No, With his agent, Arthur Marmer. And uh, he'd been filming near near to us, a uh, big house and everything called Grimsdyke, Grimsdyke Manor. And uh, I'd met him because he'd been guesting on the shows I was working on. And uh, my wife had a big thing about 
Joseph Cotton. You just mm-hmm. said the name and she buckled at the knees. And Vincent Price, we invited him to dinner. May I bring my agent? Arthur was looking after him. Certainly, of course. Oh, uh, could I bring Joe Cotton? <laughs> my wife. Went, oh. <laughs> That didn't Let alone happen. the fact that she was having to cook for Vincent Price, who was well known for as a gourmand yeah. and had a cookbook. And yeah. Yes, and our dog <laughs> left the house that night and we thought, where's he gone? The oven broke down. It was nightmare time for my darling uh, and everything. And as you said, the, the man who did, he brought a cookery book yeah. for us. And uh, later on, I am not leaving this house without that recipe. Oh, the charm of the man. <laughs> but you were working at Elstree, I think, I remember. And the biggest thrill for me was that I got, you, you managed to get me the autographs of uh, Peter Mayhew, oh, mm-hmm. Chewbacca. Mm. And a man who may not be that well remembered now, but uh, Jill Gerrard, who played Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers in the yeah. 25th century. Yeah. 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 And uh, so to me, even though I'd met Eric Morecambe and Vincent Price, yeah. like that that kind of trumped it. You, um, in an interview, said you have an amazingly clear memory for anecdotes. I have an anecdotal memory. Yeah. So, yeah, my earliest memory is two and a half. And, uh, and then after that, there are various things I remember in huge detail. I mean, how I felt as well and who was wearing what. And, but if, if it's... If it's in the form of an anecdote, then I'll remember it. Right. You know. Whereas you were saying about jokes, because a lot of people love telling jokes. Mm. You say you you're very keen, Dad. You say that uh, a lot of uh, um, observational comedians have jokes that they only tell off stage, or they um, or that you're surprised by musicians, especially very you know yeah. very good joke tellers. Yeah. So I'm just interested in that you you saying you have an anecdotal. Memory and was that something that you had naturally, or you learnt a uh, form of gosh, telling stories? That's a good question. I think if you're interested in hearing stories, um, you know that's that's the biggest part of the equation um, because you go with it. And so you're right. There are jokes that are anecdotes that you go with the story, and then you know the punchline either lands or does the opposite thing or whatever or surprises you. And sometimes it's the again, going back to Laurel and Hardy and in a visual sense, was when the bricks are falling on Oliver Hardy's head, you're waiting for the last one that is seconds later, which is when he looks up, you know, and you're waiting for that. And there's a satisfaction with that. Yeah, And that's storytelling too, isn't it? It is, yeah. 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 And I think the thing with, with the, I suppose because I grew up thinking of jokes as those structured things, which were, you know, three blokes walk into a bar. Um, and because those weren't true, uh, they're structured very well, is that I kind of, I just never, I enjoyed them, of course, yeah. because they're, they're funny, they're, they're, it's funny, but I could never tell them. Whereas for me, there was always a little journey through it and that made it easier for me to kind of uh, follow it. So, yeah, I think also because I, I, anecdotes don't have the pressure of being funny in the way that a joke does. You know, if you kind of go, this is a joke, this you kind of, joke. you, you sit back an and anecdote. you go, all right then. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas if it's a story, it can go anywhere and it can be poignant and it can be hilarious and it can be moving and 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 it can be all those things in the same little journey. But also, Barry, you do both of those things, don't you? You kind of do anecdotes, which are stories, which are funny. Yes. And then sometimes you're just prompted to tell the joke. The, the joke, yes. Yeah. So I get... Primed a lot by people. Now I had it yesterday in our pub. There was a, a gang of the old regulars uh, all around the table, and I walked in, and they just looked at me and went, "Joke, you know, I'm obliged yeah. to do it." Yeah. You know, yeah. well, you know, like in record stores where you have a, a now a currently playing or now playing, where yeah. they, they put the cover next to the the till. That's you have a joke which is like that. It's like this week's joke that I will be telling everybody because <laughs> it's the lady on the the old lady on the train has been. Well, in yes. situ for a while, for a while, um, I, you know the parrot. The, you went through a, a period of a bit like Picasso with his blue period. You went through a, a, <laughs> a parrot period. Parrot jokes, yeah. yeah. No, it, it, I just latched on the parrots because they talk. You thought so you can tell an, a, animal see, jokes. Yes, yeah. she, right. you can fit a parrot into any situation because he or she talks. Can you give me an example? Yes. 
Oh, the parrot joke, the definitive one, my favourite. Yes, I think we might have done that on a on a on another episode. Yeah, well, I'll do another <laughs> but, joke. But, but hang it. No, a guy said to his mate, "My parrot's driving me mad." Of foul language, and his mate said, "Stick him in the fridge for five minutes. You'll get the message." So he said to his parrot, "You're going to stop swearing." And the parrot said, "Why don't you?" So he got hold of it and stuck it in the fridge. Closed the door five minutes. Took it out. You're going to stop swearing. And the parrot said, "All right." And the parrot looked back in the fridge and said, "What did that chicken do?" <laughs> <That's> very good. <laughs> so, wait, you know when? So, you know when you have that, uh, you know, someone shouts joke at you. <laughs> yes. What happens in your head? Do you, do you go swiftly go through a rolodex? Or do you just grab the first one that's going to be the latest I've heard? Or sometimes I say, uh, give me a subject. Oh, okay. I want to home in on it a bit, not just. That's why the comedy jukebox sort of yeah. label is stuck, I think. I was defined once as an anecdote jukebox, put the coin in, and he yeah. tells you a relevant story or whatever. So, I mean, if we were being, being a, less, a little less kind, we used to say it's because you're full of hits. <laughs> It was um, so it, certainly with uh, the very few girlfriends I've had. One of the things that uh, we, with, with my relationship with all of them, was that they would kind of say, "All right, tell me a story," and I'd say, "Well, give me a subject," and it would then be an anecdote. It would be whether yeah. it was mashed potato, and I'd have something about that. Or were there, were there people in your family who were great storytellers? I think my mum's side of the family were all quite quick-witted. My father's side of the family were all slow-witted. So it was a strange meeting of wits. Um, but it was, I think it was their side. There was a lot of talk. Well, that's the other thing, was that when you didn't have access to you know, personal entertainment for 24 hours a day, you used to talk more. And so a lot of things emerged from that. And that's the thing that we do less of. I mean, it's interesting now that, you know, there's... I think quite rightly, there's there's a lot of um, focus on people talking um, because of mental health. You know, to kind of talk about how you feel and talk. But actually, just generally talking is good for your mental health. You know, sharing those anecdotes and the jokes yeah. and all the rest yeah. of it, because that's where perspective comes from. Yeah. You know, it's, and people are, are much more solitary and trying to get, you know, when you're you know, incredibly angry or upset or worried or whatever, the thing you lose is perspective. And you need to talk to someone else to grab a little perspective. And I've always kind of said the advantage of being uh, having a humour head is that irony gives you instant perspective. You look at that thing that's awful and you go, that is, oh, oh my God, that's awful. And if you've, you know, you've got a weird, funny head, you look at it from another angle and you yeah. go... It's just funny. And, 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 so, and visually in film, they talk about that, don't you know? Tragedy in close-up and comedy is a, is, a, yeah. is a wide shot. Yeah, yeah. But if the fact that you, you then kind of understand, I think, intrinsically, that something can be absolutely terrible and absolutely hilarious at the same time. One is not taking it away from the other. They just yeah. coexist. And that's what I think the, the great advantage of... You know, um, this is what well, you, you always, you, you always um, tell yourself off for making a joke when, if, if as a family we're having a serious discussion and you might throw a joke in, yeah, it doesn't make it any less valid to the conversation because it might mm. be giving a slightly different perspective the, on yeah, something quite difficult to talk about. The juxtaposition of a horrible subject and humour. Well, Jer uh, Ricky Gervais on, on Jerry Seinfeld, Comedian Cars Getting Coffee, tells a Holocaust yeah. joke. Do you, do you yes. know that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was about the man at the pearly gates, wasn't it, talking about uh, about the Holocaust uh, to St. Peter, uh, to God, uh, and saying, uh, you know, it's terrible, but I do have a joke about it. He says, how can you have a joke about the Holocaust? He said, well, I guess you had to be there. Mm. Oh, God. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's, you know, the sensitivity thing is is... Because you can't cater for everyone's sensitivity at the same time. You know, you can talk, uh, you can uh, say a joke about a dog and you go, well, that's fairly safe, you know. And if there's one person who's just lost their dog, then to them it's going to mean something else. And you can't cater for that. No. But you can, you know, if you're sensitive enough, cater for the mood of the time. Mm. But what I admire yes. enormously, uh, I'm often assumed to be uh, Jewish, and a rabbi in Northwood called me honorary Jew. I was delighted. <laughs> Uh, but 
moment shows of Jewish, but I've loved Jewish humour and the way they've fought back in the horror of what a lot of people had to go through, doggedly telling jokes. I can't... Yeah, but I think, you see, I'm, I'm the same. And, and so when Goodness Gracious Me came out, um, they, the Jewish Chronicle kind of said, well, these are really Jewish jokes, aren't they? I mean, you kind of like... And so they interviewed me for it. I got half page in, in the Jewish Chronicle. And uh, so I became honorary Jew at that point as well, <laughs> yes. which I was delighted about. And I said, well, yeah, it's not surprising because, you know, those of us that were writing it were influenced so much by kind of Jewish humorists. Yes. You know, going back to the Marx Brothers. And I didn't know that West Side Story, the musical, the two elements, uh, it was about anti-Semitism originally, and they changed it subsequently. Oh, really? Is that right? Yes. What yeah. a whole different musical that would have been. <laughs> the, other gang, the other gang were Jewish in the original. It's fascinating looking back. But, that's, but also, that's also about a great art and great creativity is that, yes. you know, that we can all look at something like uh, West Side Story and relate to some aspect of it because yes. it's a story well told. You know, you don't kind of go, well, I can't relate. I'm not Puerto Rican. But also, you know, pursuing the kind of, you know, the Jewish humorous thing was that the irony that goes through it and those kind of conundrums where, you know, that it goes back to so many of those old folktale, Jewish folktales, which kind of end up with a rabbi effectively going on the one hand <laughs> and on the other hand, and it's kind of real and it's funny. And, and so I think it runs through their storytelling. And then when you, you, know, when you go through their kind of uh, history of persecutions of various kind, you kind of go that thread of storytelling, which had humour and heart to it, yeah. was always a part of it. And so, again, it, you know, it's, going, it's going back to me kind of saying, you know, um, uh, on a Saturday when I was a kid in the school holidays, you'd get the history of comedy by watching it for a day. And with that, you you get that kind of history of where those humorists may have come from. Absolutely. As you say, you get the immediately contemporary stuff in the evening. Yeah. And, you get, and, and you're extrapolating from that, oh, I see where the lineage of that. Yeah. And going back to basics, I'm, Alan Bennett said a sense of humour is a sense of proportion. Oh, that's quite good. Yeah. 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 And you, you see it now in the political climate. That they all think they must show they've got a sense of humour. And you think, you should have left that. Don't try a joke. Don't try the funny line because you can't unless do you're, it. Unless you're Barack Obama and you basically, you could open. For, yeah. <laughs> yes, you can. Yeah. <laughs> for yeah. someone. Alan Johnson, who retired from politics and writes now, he's an author. I think he's one of the best leaders they never had because the man has got humour. Because I'm involved with the Oldie magazine and uh, host the lunches. And uh, Alan appeared twice, once for a book and once for the next book. And it was an audience of a certain age. And he stood up and said, well, here I am again. He said, I'll do exactly the stuff I did before because... Half of you have gone and the other half wouldn't remember. <laughs> That's very and good. They, they laughed, you see. It, yeah. Also, somebody else saying that, they wouldn't have laughed. It's the persona of the person who's saying it. It's like two comedians can tell the same joke and the audience laugh at one comedian, not at the other. It's who well, it's well, coming from. People always kind of related that again because, because Jewish humour was so influential, I suppose, was that they always say, well, you know, only... Jewish people can tell Jewish jokes. And, and, and I think the reason for that is that you kind of, you get, one assumes that the Jewish person telling the Jewish joke has no hatred of Jews. <laughs> you know, so there's a different timbre to it well, than someone sure. saying it, the same joke, but saying it with a harsher tone or a kind of, you know. I'd be regarded as presumptuous telling a Jewish joke, wouldn't I, really? I'm, I'm telling it admiringly as a fan of Jewish No, but you're Jewish very good because you, you always attribute. So, you, so like, you know, anecdote storytelling, but you always have a, a story about how you heard that joke and then tell the joke because you get the yeah. best of both worlds. Then. Yeah, yeah. I, told, I mentioned Louis Lippmann. My yeah. introduction to Jewish humour was at school and there was a guy who became a friend of mine, Louis Lippmann, and a Jewish boy. And the master of one class said, uh, maths master, Lippmann, what's 10% of 52 pounds? And he said, exactly, sir, what's 10%? <laughs> and the master laughed. And I thought, boy, you're interesting. 
That was a wonderful, that was my introduction, really, to Jewish humour, Louis Lippmann. But any, any US comedy you would have been listening to on the radio was almost, you know, certainly written by Jewish writers and performers yeah. at that time. I mean, right through, you know, from the Marx Brothers and, mm. you know, 29, I think, was their first, I think Coconuts, I think, was 1929. So that's incredibly early in terms of sound, isn't yeah. it? And, um, but, you know, through to the Billy, Billy Wilder stuff, which is and the I.L. Diamond written stuff, which is extraordinary. And then through into the 60s but where... Broadway and Hollywood, so did Jewish writers and... Amazing, but, it, but, but it turned, particularly in terms of influencing comedy, because yes. you know, particularly film and then television became what we you know digested. I mean, that's what we were. The emigration from the Nazis as well; they were leaving and going to the states, you know, and it was the states' win. What a those brilliant people! Irving Berlin could hardly speak English when he arrived in America. Actually, uh, um, uh, Billy Wilder couldn't. Initially, and you, oh, you know, wonderful. you go look at the complexity in the comedy, just in the comedy writing yes. of his stuff is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you know, whether it's across some like it hot, which I still think is a work of genius, but you know, across the apartment or any of those things, yes, yeah. it's, it's amazing. Is that one of your Desert Island movies? Have you you had to? I think certainly. Um, some like it hot is because I think it it almost has everything I love in a film. Oh, it's brilliant because you've got you know you've got Marilyn Monroe who I, I never looked more kind of vulnerable and cute and yeah. beautiful and sexy. And then you had Jack Lemmon, who was just a, an acting hero of mine. He could just do everything. Oh, and the premise is is great. Um, you know, it, and it's now, even if you, I, you know, I'm trying to look at it through 21st century eyes, but the idea of two men having to dress up as women, there's no point within the film that I can think of now where they're demeaning women in any way. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's, yeah. given when it was written, that'd be quite an easy thing to do, but they didn't do that. That's extraordinary. I think music's fantastic. I love the soundtrack. You know, it's... And it's, it's, even, got got a, it's even got a punchline right at the end. <laughs> I mean, yeah. just... But the whole movie has a punchline. Genius. Yeah. That punchline They were just genius. talking, saying, how are we going to end this? They weren't even <laughs> mad at choosing that line, and it's become... The that's, legend. That's, and that's a Python-esque thing to do, isn't it? Just to say, I don't know how we're going to end it, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. Just I think it, shrug it off. I, th I think it's a work of genius. I really do. I mean, there are other comedy films that I think are great and mean something to me. But, I mean, even something like, um, which, which vies in my head for my favourite film of all time, with some like it hot, is A Matter of Life and Death. Oh, God, and, yeah. Oh, know, yes. Yeah. It's genuinely really funny. Yes. At times, and you go, okay. Then give it, you know, the subject matter. Well, there's, there's all the stuff died. in heaven with all the different, you know, it's oh, it's really flying opposite Trubshaw and all that, and then you have the uh, um, Marius Goring, yeah. <laughs> whatever that accent is. Yeah, doing. whatever that accent is. Yeah, <laughs> he's just absolutely it, loving every second of that. But it's, it's an incredibly profound film mm -hmm. about about uh, affirming life and affirming love. And yet it's really funny. I'd put that in a double bill with uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I like watching those two together because they, they speak a lot to each other yeah. in terms of the, the yeah, visitor yeah. from heaven and, you know, the sort of having a second chance and all of those yeah. things. Did you, see, did you see any of those films at the cinema? Yes, I think I saw Some Like It Heart in the cinema. You'd just, just come to London by then, hadn't you? Yeah. Back in Leeds, I remember seeing Rocket Ship XM which was the first science fiction film. Oh, and Buana Devil, which was the first terrible film, but 3D, you wore glasses. Oh, right. <laughs> a, a lover in your arms, a lion in your lap. <laughs> but also <laughs> literal. Yeah. <laughs> and somebody then was doing the joke, sitting in the cinema with the glasses on and the guy next to him sitting, and uh, he turns to the guy next to him and says, are you enjoying this film? He said, I'm in it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the other thing. With the, the, when I first bought, you know, a large screen, it was like a plasma screen at that time. And, you know, I'd never experienced a TV this big. It's a TV. And actually the first thing I did was watch old films I'd never seen on a screen that big. So the Laurel and Hardys and the Some Like It Hots and stuff like that. And I played that. And it, it felt like I was discovering them for the first time. 
suddenly at that scale, suddenly seemed to fit yeah. how great these films were. Because you're then seeing the whole background and how that's yeah. you know, adding to Buster the Keaton as a projectionist chaos. who gets up and walks into the film on the screen in a cinema. Have you seen that? He walks in it's yeah, that yes, familiar. He walks, he's a projectionist. Right. But he gets fascinated by this film and he climbs onto the screen and gets into the I mean, film. How bloody inventive oh, is that? Boy. I mean, it's purple, brilliant. Purple Rose of Cairo, isn't it? In, yeah, re- in reverse. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Stepping brilliant. into it. But it's amazing how, you know, look, that's the thing now, because it's not as available. The problem with it being on, on the internet is you have to find it. It, yeah. it isn't yes. presented to you, which TV kind of still does. But that was the great thing about watching all those uh, silent films and early talkies is you just kind of realise just quite how inventive they were. I remember, oh. I mean, with for me, Modern Times and City Lights, the two uh, Chaplin films, I think took silent film as far as it could go. I mean, I think they're just so extraordinary, mm. in, you know, in their storytelling. What interests me, Sanjeev, mm. I don't know whether you've noticed, I... I never laugh at Charlie Chaplin. I just think you're brilliant. <laughs> right, right. He doesn't make me laugh, and there's no way around it. Nobody could convince me I should be laughing. It's like if you tell a joke and somebody doesn't laugh, explaining it to them, no, leave it. <laughs> the debate's over. Respect, you didn't laugh. I think it's funny you do. I've rarely laughed at Charlie Chaplin, but I think he's brilliant. You've just reminded me that there were, there were some sketches that I wrote for Goodness Gracious Me, which were the uh, Asian parents who never got the joke. Oh, and yes. Do you remember it? I'm amazed I remember you remember the it. parents, yes. And it was, so it was the son who kind of giggles and the parents go, what is it? And he goes, oh, I just thought somebody told me a joke today. And they go, well, t- yeah, tell us. And he goes, well, no, it's a silly joke. They go, we like jokes, tell us. <laughs> and he goes, all right then. So he goes, um, there's this three-legged chicken. And the dad goes, well, I don't believe that. <laughs> and he yeah. goes, what? He goes, I don't believe there's a three-legged chicken. I've never seen one. He goes, no, it's part of the joke. He's going, all right. So anyway, there's a three-legged chicken, and this bloke says to the farmer, you know, how does it taste? And he goes, well, that's wrong. He said, if you've got something as unique as a three-legged chicken, the last thing you should be doing is butchering it. To, it, was, it was just that. The, the shortened version that we then did, a subsequent one, was the sun comes in. It still makes me laugh. It shouldn't make me laugh. It's my own bloody joke. But... Um, the son comes in and he goes, knock, knock. And the dad just goes, I'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the parents that never got Well, the in a nice piece of kismet, you know, to, to wrap up all of our themes and all of our topics, that is my life in reverse. Because <laughs> my father obviously would, you were talking about the, the go-to joke. Mm. The go-to joke for you was always the cockerel, which I don't think has been told on a microphone by you for a while. Yeah, but you dig out every now and again. You've got to remind me of it. There's a man driving down a country road. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that, like, do you know what? Sorry, can I just say, that was like a push start. Like, <laughs> I've, got been, I've got him in second gear. My sunstroke carer. <laughs> man driving down a country lane, ran over a cockerel, and he was rather upset. And the farmhouse was close by. And he, he went and knocked on the door. The woman came and he said, uh, I, I appear to have killed your cockerel. I'd like to replace him. She said, please yourself, the hens are round the back. <laughs> this is kind of you, like... You've got another one loaded. Oh, go on, then. Go on. <clears throat> Fire away. This elephant went into a pub. Oh, that would never happen. <laughs> <laughs> Now this is, I mean, I don't, you know, this is kind of addendum really, but this is just, uh, and just so because, you know, there's people here and it's in public, but, um, but Barry, you are, I mean, really there is no one like you. It's kind of how uh, encouraging you are across the board. Is, is because just I was encouraged. Uh, Frank Miller and Dennis Norton, who, mm. you know, take from here in radio, they never patronised me. They just treated you as a fellow writer. I never forgot that. You were just their mate, like them, a scriptwriter. Goldman Simpson. Goldman Simpson were a few years older than me, not much. They were just the same. I never forgot that. And I think instinctively, when I started meeting younger ones, I thought, I've got to repay this. Well, Michael Michael Palin and Eric Idle both said you were Uncle Baz because you were the first person 
in that Methodist hall when you're meeting for the Frost Report that came over to say hello and you know, said, said, come and join us. We're all new here. I said, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great. We played football with a tennis ball with Frost as a goalkeeper. Uh, when we'd had the meeting, it was like, no, I called With no disrespect you, so, to anything that's so gone let me, before. So let me just re- recap on I that. I didn't so, even know that. So you, so you were playing football with a <laughs> tennis ball. Yes. David Frost was in goal. And who else was playing? I mean, who was... There we're just a gang of it writers. It does sound like there's a punchline. Yeah. It? it was a whole gang of writers. No, there's no tag no. in this story. <laughs> who was the best footballer? Oh, I don't. No, we really, no, we really need to know. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. how good a goalie was David Frost. Yeah. <laughs> Marty Feldman, Twinkle Toes. Yeah, I could have played him, for Stoke. God knows this. I called him a practicing catalyst. <laughs> Frost was brilliant with people. He'd noticed Graham Chapman and I become mates, and Graham always wrote with John Cleese. But uh, Graham and I had never thought of writing together, and we got together. We wrote together a lot of stuff. And John Cleese would say, are you being unfaithful to me with Baz? <laughs> well, you, you, you wrote with Cleese very briefly and decided it just wasn't going to work. We just decided it wasn't going to work. Yeah. I wanted to write the sketch very quickly, go, no, we can do better than that, and then bin it. And John <laughs> wanted to analyse every line as you went along. Mm-hmm. So we, we just, like, we were friends. We said, this isn't working, you know. You've got to have a, a rapport when you're, like, when you're writing with somebody. Have you... Always written with a partner, or I've never written with a partner. Oh, right, um, and it is—it's um, a weird, difficult headspace because uh, the level of arrogance that you have to feel to say, "I've just thought of this," and I think millions of people <laughs> are going to laugh at this. It's a weird headspace because you start yeah. to question it as well. That, that's the problem with oh, the analysing thing: is you can go, "Oh, well, actually, I know, the tenth time of reading it, I'm not sure if it's funny." I never wrote alone subsequently. Always bagging it about. I wrote Danny LaRue, who had a famous nightclub. I wrote that show on my own. That was the last time I worked alone. Oh, and the, uh, the heckler. What, at uh, Danny's? Yes, very quickly. The, <laughs> we'd have the, the band would play a tune, then we'd have the opening number, then I, would, I was in the show as well. And I'd go on and do a sort of warm-up uh, to kick the show off. And I told one joke, and a voice in the darkness said, this is satire, I suppose. And I said, no, it's nightclub filth. You should get out more. Got to laugh. It's John Lennon. I was taken <laughs> by John Lennon. Wow. That's a pathetic boast, isn't it? <laughs> and then subsequently is with you. That was the one thing I didn't say, by the way, is you both, you both met your wives whilst working through comedy. Because uh, yes. my mum yeah. was a singer, dancer at Danny LaRue's club. Which ah, is, yeah. You worked yeah. work together before, yeah. you, before you became a couple. Best thing that ever happened to me was uh, meeting her. I was sat standing next to the piano. I met my wife the very same day I met Ronnie Corbett. Tossed a coin and married her. <laughs> 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 oh, boy. <laughs> Ronnie said to me one day, he said, uh, I don't know what rung of a ladder you're on, Baz, but stay there. He said, you're always around, but nobody's pointing at you. <laughs> I'm the peripheral figure, the straight man, the co-writer, the all over the place, the warm-up man. And, yeah, but know. also, do you know, I have to say, probably one of the warmest, actually, that I've met. Oh, and, and it's, it's true. And do you know oh, what it is? Thank you. It's it, no need to thank. It's the truth. And because I think that, particularly with with comedians, there are those comedians. One assumes that all comedians want to make people laugh, but there are those who also want to be made to laugh. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's, and that suddenly divides that very large group into a much smaller one. But in terms of the warmth and encouragement, uh, I, d- I don't know anyone else who's, who's been as consistent a- across the board. That is one of the greatest privileges of, of when I tell people who my dad is, they yeah. recognise the surname. They, the first thing they do is smile because you have a very positive effect on I love on people, people laughing and it doesn't have to be me who makes them laugh. Graham Garden, my old friend, said, oh, Baz needs an audience. And I'd said, I prefer Ooh, yeah. Baz needs people. Yeah, he's like a yeah. social. I'm yeah, terminally yeah, yeah. gregarious. And I love, I love laughing. I don't care where it can, It doesn't have to be me making them laugh. And I'd want a conversation as well. I'm not just telling jokes, you know. I just, but large. I'm a people-aholic. <laughs> I'm not a workaholic. <laughs> 
Well, are we uh, yeah. are we being thrown out of here? I mean, no, it's, no, it's, it's just, I just never know when to press stop. No, I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, we did finally work out when to press stop. It was just as the bell went for last orders. The tube stopped running and the landlord physically threw us out. If you've enjoyed Now Where Were We?, We'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review, subscribe to the show, and yes, tell your friends. Thank you so much to everyone who's done so already and left such kind words. It really does help us to find listeners who might otherwise miss the show. So until next time, when we'll be sitting down with Giles Brandreth, from my father and myself, goodbye and thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.